Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking with Tanya Luna. And we are so excited that we have gotten to know her. She is, among many other extraordinary accomplishments, the founder of Scarlet Sparks, which is a not-for-profit that helps animal organizations create workplaces that are healthy places for humans to work. I think that that's a sorely needed, not just in the animal movement, but but in so much of the not-for-profit world, giving people some job satisfaction so they do their job better, so the animals benefit. Totally. It's a really cool interview. It's very, very different stuff. And I just want to keep Tanya in my pocket because the work that she's doing and the work that they're doing over there at Scarlet Spark is is amazing. It really is. So uh, speaking of amazing, you've had an amazing week, I would say. Amazing. Yeah. Would that be a good word? Yeah. I'm, a, I have to say, I get easily overwhelmed. I, you know, that's my nature. And I have been a little overwhelmed, but it is very, well, it's very exciting. I have a new little family member. Her name is Lulu. She came with that name. Not that there's anything wrong with that name. She is a dog. She is not the dog I expected to have. She's, she's quite elderly and she was a little desperate for a home. Her person went into a nursing home. I don't know. This is a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. And uh, as it happens, right? As as dogs happen. And she didn't have any place else to go. And so I said, okay. And she is the sweetest little thing. The the cats are are not thrilled, but they're fine. They haven't, you know, done anything bad, but they're like, what the hell? So Lulu is nearly 15 years old. She's, she's definitely an old dog. Like she's got some oldie, oldie doggy, oldie doggy issues, but you know, who doesn't? And she's really sweet. Like she's, I, I know what you mean about how she's not exactly the dog that you kind of expected to wind up with, but I think you two might be good for each other. I'm not sure yet how, but I think there's something there. Well, let's just assume that's the case because now she's here. She can't see very well and she can't hear very well, but I I don't see any signs of dementia. She seems to be pretty sharp. It's just that, you know, she doesn't take in that much. And it must be so, I I understand this is her, her, you know, she had two foster homes before this. I mean, at her age, not being able to see or hear very well, like it must all be so confusing, but she, she seems fine. And she, the first day she was just Oh, well, you you were the one who went and picked her up and it was a very, very long drive and, and she, did not she was like being exhausted. In the car. Yeah. She was exhausted. But after that, she, you know, she's kind of come through. She does sleep a lot, you know, so we have that in common. And uh, actually, I don't sleep at all. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying that. I have been sleeping pretty well recently, but, you know, we won't get into that. She's super cute. Yeah. Like I said, she, she doesn't, you know, she has a lot of health issues. So the most daunting one being... According to her vet record, she's in third stage periodontal disease, which I guess is not that unusual for a dog her age, but but that's a big problem. And, you know, lots of other things, but nothing dreadful. And she's so sweet. And yeah. uh, she just seems, you know how it is having a dog around, especially an old dog. They're just, they're just like, like peaceful mm-hmm. little warriors, you know, making their way in the world. I, I said to you, I wanted to name her Blanche Dubois because of the line from streetcar, a streetcar named Desire. I have always relied on the kindness of strangers. 
I know. Sorry about the Southern accent. I know I shouldn't do accents, but you know, you can't really deliver that line without a Southern accent. Yeah. And here she is, you know, going from stranger to stranger. You just wonder what's going on in these little minds. And, and here she is. And she's like, hi, it's morning. Okay, I'll go for a walk. She loves her walks. I'll give her that. Also, I will tell you that even though she can't really see well or hear well, whenever I come over to visit her, she's like, oh, it's the lady. Like she, she totally knows who I am from that car ride. And she's excited to say hi to me. She seems to smell fine. I mean, at least when she goes out, it's constant sniffing as dogs will do. And so that sense seems to be still working. I hope she likes my cologne. Ask her. Next well, it's, it's only one of the 272 different scents she has detected about you. True, true. It's a different world. We can't even understand how it is or what it is that they are smelling. It's it's a whole different thing. Well, mazel tov to both of you. I'm very excited about having a new little... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a little nerve-wracking getting attached to somebody who, who is, you know, she's not going to last forever. I know. I've, I'm definitely a senior dog rescuer, and I know the joy and the pain of it, but I'm very, very excited that she has you and that you yeah. and her... Yeah, and the, the cats are a little annoyed with you, I have to say. Yeah, but, I know. You know. They'll get over it. I'm sorry. Oh, you know, there's. I love them so much, but it can't be denied. Cats are just such drama queens. <laughs> Everything is so... Well, of course, it is big to have a dog in the house, but adjusting s- seamlessly is really not their thing. You know, we got a new cat tree. Like, we got actually three new cat trees. Your house is kind of a cat forest. I know. Well, I have to tell you, when we moved from... LA to the East Coast in an RV, in a rented RV, we brought a cat tree with us in the small RV because we were moving with Stella with the cat and we wanted her to like have, Yeah, you know, a cat something. has to be able to get away. Right. The cat has to be able to cat. I just verbed, I just made it a verb. I just verbed verb. Anyway, so we've been putting new cats new cat trees in some of our window areas and the bottom of our windows have like, you know, um, kind of this wallpapery stuff on it, but it's pretty and it's, it looks like stained glass, one hopes, but it's so that one of our dogs who likes to bark out the window at every single thing that happens can't see out the window. And so the cat tree kind of goes above that to the, like the top half of the window so that Stella can see out. And it's like, wow. I can't believe I haven't had 18 cat trees for the entirety of the time I've had her. She's like in heaven. When you discover something they like, it's just so, you can't help but wonder, why haven't I always done this? Because, you know, you buy them these toys and they're like, eh, Mm -hmm. and then you find the thing that they love. And it just Mm -hmm. feels so good to see them enjoying themselves. So speaking of things that they like, I want to tell you about an experience that I had that I I haven't told you about yet. I'm not sure I liked it, but I think I did. Yeah, I, I know what you're going to talk about, but I have not heard a word about it yet, which is not like you, but... Uh-huh. No. Well, it was last night. I've been busy eating popcorn and opening Hanukkah gifts. That's all, that's all I do these days. Anyway, I took a bungee fitness class. Now, let me explain what that means. And by the way, it wasn't really a fitness class because I was taking the like fundamentals from six to seven. And then from like seven to eight is the actual class that you can take after you know the fundamentals. I don't think I've ever heard of bungee fitness other than jumping off of bridges. You didn't do that, did you? Good Lord, no. Although I did jump out of a plane once, but I don't have to talk about that because... 
That but was, not with a bungee. That would be really bad. <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> that would be really bad. Yeah. Uh, no, that was not with a bungee. So a bungee fitness club. I went to Rock City Circus, which is the coolest place ever. And it's just like this kind of kind of giant warehouse. I assume we do not have elephant acts. No, there's all humans. In fact, they have shows constantly and they're all like Cirque type shows. They're humans. Uh-huh. And so it's this big, giant warehousey space. And in that corner, you've got your trapeze. And there were like these little kids practicing on the trapeze. They were amazing. Like, I, I mean, seriously, truly, like swing, j- flip, this thing, that thing, fall on purpose and then flip out. Like, what? Then over here, you've got your like aerial ropes, you know, the silks, they call it. I don't think it's silk, though. It's just like a rope. Anyway. And then over there, you've got your hula hoops uh, that are hanging from the sky for that class. And then over here, where I took the class, there's these bungees. So it's these bungee cords. And it was a small class. There were like five of us. And we all stepped into this harness. So you tell them what you weigh ahead of time. And that way they know what's what weight harness thing or whatever. So you step in the harness and then you pull it up. It's like multiple seat belts kind of thing. And then you stand on a, a like step stool and then you're attached by like this giant carabiner or several carabiners. And then you step off of it. So like instant wedgie, you can still kind of stand up, but your like body is pulled up, you know? And the, and there's a lot of like bounce in it. And I just remember hearing that when I was a little baby, the Johnny Jumper was my favorite thing in the world. So I wondered if I had something primal going on because oh, the Johnny like Jumper... A, like a muscle memory. Yeah, exactly. So I started like, I started like goo-goo-ga-ga-ing. It was weird. Anyway, no, I didn't. That was a joke. You're not laughing. I'll, mo- I'll move on. <laughs> I'm, I'm Personally, I'm, just, I'm a little distressed. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So basically you're learning these dives. So if you like run and dive, you're you're then bounced back and you have to run backwards when you're bounced back. Except for the first time I did it, I didn't run backwards and I got I got rug burn on my baby toe. Because <laughs> it, it pulled me back. It's the worst injury I had. That's fine. Although it hurts. Anyway, you also fly. So you run backwards and then you run forward and you jump into the air. In, it's called the Superman and you're in the Superman pose And then you're, you, again, you, you get pulled back and it's, and then you do planks and then you do like. Are planks a lot easier than planks without? Well, yeah, they are. Because planks are pretty hard. Yeah, I would say yes, except it's a different type of, it's a different type of hard. But yeah, the thing is, I've never done a cartwheel or anything. I've never been able to do a cartwheel when I was a kid or, you know, at all. Like my body does not have this muscle memory at all. I have never done a cartwheel either. I said it to someone before and I was like, have you? And they were like, uh, yeah, like I was an idiot. So I'm glad to hear you haven't either. I'm not sure that doesn't mean that you're not an idiot, but... but Okay, thank but, you. But at least we you're, can be idiots together. We're going to get hate mail for that, just so you know. Every, <laughs> every now and then we hear from someone who's like, I don't like how Marianne talks to Jasmine. And I was, I'm like, Marianne is the most sarcastic human I've ever met. I wasn't... I wasn't, I didn't say anything bad about you. I, I just said eh, that that I, I, could I couldn't do them either. 
all right, so that's fine. Uh, thank you. We'll sit there and not cartwheel together. We'll just stand up, stand still. Or maybe we'll just sit down because we like that better. Anyway, so you have to kind of push your body. Like you have to kind of propel your body into like, uh, like as if you're about to belly flop. And my body was like, what are you doing? We're going to we're going to hit the floor with our face, which you can't do. It's not possible. I like the way you use we to talk about you and your body. (laughs) Yes, it's a we. We're a we. Anyway, so it was, I honestly had so much fun. I I am going to, I took, uh, I I signed up for another class in a couple of weeks to try it again. I think I'll take the fundamentals like several more times (laughs) before I decide whether I want to do the actual workout. But I've been, you know, I'm usually pretty good at exercising in the last couple of months. I just haven't done it at all. So I kind of needed something very different to jumpstart me. And what, what can you possibly do that's more energizing? Yeah, I think it's great because we, we kind of both fell off our exercise. We were being so good going to the Y all the time, like for months and months. And then we both fell off, I don't know, the the turnip truck, the exercise truck at the same moment. Yes, we did. Which was not good because up before that, I would fall off of it and you would get me back on and you would fall off it and I would get you back on. And now we both fell off and we're like, yeah. oh, what are we doing over here? <laughs> oh, look, an old dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier to walk. Well, it's actually not that easy to walk an old dog because it's cold out. You have to walk really slow. So uh, before we get to our guests, there are a couple of movies coming out that I am so excited about. Me too. We haven't seen these movies yet, but I can't wait. And I'm not talking about The Color Purple or Willy Wonka, the remakes of both, even though I'm also excited about those, even though I f- find it kind of sad that both of them are remakes from I know. movies that it makes were Makes you feel a little old, doesn't it? Just a little bit, When they're bit, remaking yeah. your movies. Yeah, totally. So... I'm really excited about Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, which is coming to Netflix. The The first film was a hit and it's so great. To see. I love the first film and we reviewed yeah. it. That's when we used to do reviews back but, then. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Yeah, and it, it's so great to see a sequel that could get more people talking about animal rights. And it's set in the 1950s, right when Chicken Nuggets started, which... How cool is that? And also, notably, the director, Sam Fell, became a vegetarian while making this film, which is interesting. I would love to interview him. Boy, I would love to. This shows like how powerful movies can be in changing our views. I remember we interviewed Liz Marshall once, who is a brilliant documentarian, and she went vegan while making a film about Joanne MacArthur, The Ghosts in Our Machine, which we're actually in also. And I just love talking to artists who start a project and somehow are changed from it. I also love that this film is is fun while also like getting people to think critically. And the, the writer, John Ronson, said that... The writer of the movie is John Ronson? I used to live across the street from John Ronson. Oh, that's right. Maybe I'm wrong. Hold on. Let me Google it. John Ronson. Well, I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, he is a screenwriter. Like, like. John Ronson. He also wrote that other animal rights movie. Yeah, he did. He wrote it. About the huge pig. Or. Or something. Or, yeah. uh, (laughs) Or or something. 
John Ronson films Pig. Uh, that was Okja. Okja. Yeah. That's so exciting. That was amazing. Yeah, we should interview him. Yeah, maybe we could, maybe you could like go, since you know where he lives, go knock on his door or something. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. That's what yeah. I should do with all our interviewees. That's I'm sure Vic- that'll get, well, we'll never have an interview again. That's how Vicky gets all of our interviews. We just <laughs> send her around the world knocking at people's doors. Anyway, so John said that the film tackles really heavy stuff, but in a way that isn't too intense. And it's just so... Well, that's the key, you know, like let's hope, I mean, I haven't seen it yet. So I don't know whether it's going to be great or not, but but all in all, that is really the key, isn't it? It's to it's to find right. that sweet spot where people, it's like it's really easy to give people all sorts of horrible information, but they won't listen to it. So you know, yeah, I'm excited about it. Some things work for some people, and I'm just sure this will reach a lot of people. Also, that it's on Netflix, so it's free. People, you know, loads of people are going to watch this. Yeah, I can't wait. But there's another movie as well coming out. That I'm super excited. Well, it's not coming out. It's been in theaters for a while and I have not yet seen it because I never found it playing near me. But now it's going to be on online. And I'm sure you've all heard about it too. And probably a lot of you have heard it. And that's The Smell of Money, which is a very different kind of uh, film. And it's a documentary and it's about this community in North Carolina fighting the pig industry. And I, I mean, I don't know whether how much it involves um, the animals themselves. I know it has a lot to do with the horrific environmental devastation wrought by the pig industry. But it's already, I think, on. I just haven't seen it yet. On demand. So this one you do have to pay for. On Apple, Google Play, Amazon, and YouTube. I'm super excited. I can't wait to see it. And also, I think we have an um, interview lined up with the filmmaker, Jamie Berger. So this is really exciting. Totally. So many things to watch. I've been really into watching movies. I mean, that one is not like, you know, holiday fair. I think Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget makes things light. This one is not light, but I bet it's yeah. terrific. By the way, so speaking of movies, Ryan O'Neill died last week and I was sad because I like Ryan O'Neill and I was thinking about the movie I saw What's Up Doc which is like my favorite movie of all time ever made if you haven't seen it watch it and that got me to thinking about the fact that notably I just finished listening to the audiobook of Barbara Streisand's memoir and the reason it's notable is because it was about a thousand pages long and in audio that that translated to 48 hours and change. Can I just insert here that Barbara Streisand was in What's Up Doc and that's what the connection is here because I I think people are now scratching their heads. Okay, so I have to say a couple things about this book. I loved this book because you can't be be a more badass multi-hyphenate than Barbara Streisand and I'm going to channel her. Like seriously, when I want to get shit done, I'm going to channel Barbara. I love her. Maybe I I should read it. But that would take really a long time. Yeah. And I also want to say she's horrific on animal issues. Like, and it's infuriating. And she actually loves her dog so much that she cloned her dog. Yeah. She knows that the the dog has a different soul than her first dog, Sammy. But she did clone the dog. So there was this part, and I know I, I told you this, but I wanted to mention it. She was talking about how active she's been in gender inequality issues, which she has. She's quite the activist for like a lot of issues in important ways. And she was talking about how the main studies on men who 
the sorry, the main studies on high blood pressure have been done on men when it is mainly women who have high blood pressure. Well, I think men have high blood pressure too. It's just women, more including so, me, also have more it. so than men. And I did not know that. I thought it was, you know, I thought everybody had it. Like everybody died. It's the major cause of death. High blood pressure is what kills you. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a doctor. I know that's shocking. But let me get to the point. So she was saying how this was bananas to her. That that why are these tests being done on men and not women if it's trying to find some kind of a cure for it? And then she said, and the same is true about the mice. They are only testing the male mice, not the female mice, which is crazy because I asked why, she said, and it's because the female mice have different hormones. And so I said, well, so do female humans. And I got them to start testing on female mice too. I am all about the women, including the women mice. All right. Yeah, Let's like, like you are so actually she, screaming. You're so incensed. But, but sorry. you know, like, like, why are you surprised? <laughs> I'm not surprised, but I just want to, I just want to have a moment saying that she went through the logic of uh-huh. of this being completely illogical uh-huh. that they wouldn't test on the right, you know, gender uh-huh. animal, whether it's a human animal or a non-human animal, and that she stopped there. Like it wasn't like at what point are you like Barbara? Do you think that people are, you know, like we have all come to realize that people are like just bizarrely stupid about animals, like bizarrely, like we don't even understand how it is that they think what they think. Do you think that that's just that animals is a special category or that people are just bizarrely stupid? Well, it concerns me because I'm not bizarrely stupid about animals. But when you say that, it makes me wonder what I am bizarrely stupid about. Oh, yeah. And why I worry about that all the time. But, you know, like, 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 as long as I'm not bizarrely stupid about animals, I'm willing to give myself some credit. Right. Yeah, no, I think people are bizarrely stupid. I don't think that people, by and large, are capable of nuanced thinking. There's something about animals that makes it even, I mean, maybe it's that we eat them, like, or they eat them. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's why. I don't think that's the only reason why. I think the other reason is that people don't think, like, like, I, you know, as you say, we probably don't either. How did we get to like take over the earth? <laughs> it just astounds me. I know. Well, and well, speaking of the earth, Barbara Streisand, one of her biggest issues is the climate. Like huge, giant issue of hers. She was very close with Bill Clinton and she was very involved in the things that he did. Anyway, so it's ridiculous. People are stupid. Uh, people, people who need people are the stupidest people. Well, I have never understood people, that song. People, people who, who need, need people, people are, the are not lucky because then they're they're going to get screwed because they need people and people are probably going to let them down. For the record, she also thinks this is stupid. This is a stupid lyric too. She thinks it's a dumb lyric. Unfortunately, right. animals need people and people don't always show up for them. But Tanya Luna does. There you go, Marianne. Take it away. Take it away. I'm so glad we're doing this interview or you're doing this interview or putting it on today after that very dark conversation for which I apologize. But Tanya Luna is not dark. She is an entrepreneur, a psychology researcher and author who has founded and grown multiple companies, including Scarlet Spark, a nonprofit that creates human-friendly workplaces for organizations that help animals 
and Life Labs Learning, one of the fastest growing leadership development companies in the world. This woman is, I mean, she is a powerhouse. She is an amazing person. Her books, she also writes, include Lead Together, Stop Squirreling Away Power and Build a Better Team, The Leader Lab, and surprise. She is also a TED speaker and lives in a micro sanctuary with 32 rescued animals and one human partner. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Hey, everyone. Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season, If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text Hen House to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. And we hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to our Hen House, Tanya. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be on this side. I'm usually listening. I mean, I'm always listening. Oh, that's so great. Well, I just want to say I love your name, like really a lot. So is Luna the last name that you've always had? Or is it your partner's name? Is it a name you chose? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, thank you, first of all. The short version of this. So it it is my husband's name. However, I was confident throughout most of my life from a child that I would never take someone else's name. You know, my mother kept her name, my grandmother kept her name. So I was like, never taking a name. And then I was like, Luna, that's really pretty. So (laughs) I took that. But then I technically also changed my first name. So my given name, I'm from Ukraine originally, is Tatiana. And as a teenager, I hated people mispronouncing it. And I sort of had this like big immigrant badge that I walked around with with that name. So I also changed my first name legally. Mm -hmm. So I'm a whole new person. Wow. I kind of regret it now. I now wear my immigrant badge with pride. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I just wanted to take a moment to say, I just can't imagine what it must be like for you right now with everything going on in Ukraine. And how are you doing? I mean, I've moved to the U.S. such a long time ago. Obviously, I, I feel sadness and fear, but I don't think in a way that's different than any other feeling I have toward other crises in other parts of the world that are going on now. I think whether it's because of how much time has passed or just the fact that I 
see all suffering as similar within humans and all other species. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. But I think I'm probably processing it the same way that most of us are. Yeah. Well, you are doing so much good in the world. And I'm sure that just being able to focus your efforts on something that you're so passionate about at least for me, I would assume for you too, is a way of dealing with the grief and the fear and the sadness. Oh, totally. Yeah. I feel lucky. We're so lucky that we're able to do this. And with that in mind, what is Scarlet Spark and why is it needed? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Scarlet Spark, my elaborate coping mechanism <laughs> slash, yeah. of course, my passion and the passion of my co-founders, Brian, Alyssa, Charlene. So Scarlet Spark exists to help animal advocacy organizations create more human-friendly workplaces. And our thinking behind the organization is that there are all these incredible organizations out there doing good for animals, fighting the good fight, but most of them don't have the skill or experience of actually building an organization, things like leadership skills or organizational design, things that you don't think to have as you're pursuing this passion in animal advocacy or you just don't have time for. And so the cost of that is ton of burnout, ton of lost time, high turnover. Phonolytics found recently that people stay within an organization and animal advocacy for only about two years and then leave. Are they potentially leaving the movement? That's something that really stresses me out. Oftentimes they cite that the reason they're leaving is because of problems with leadership. And these are fixable problems. We know how to make organizations stronger. We know how to make leaders more capable. And so Scarlet Spark exists as a free resource for organizations to be stronger as organizations so that they are more likely to achieve their mission. Wow. There's so many things in that that I want to talk about. So you just mentioned this. Are there workplace issues that are particular to the animal protection movement or are they mostly just the same challenges that face any organization? We did a study at the very beginning of 2023. I think we had about 60 different animal protection organizations participate to see are there differences and challenges. My background is in organizational psychology. Before Scarlet Spark, I had a leadership development company where we had over 2,000 clients. So we worked with probably 400,000 leaders by the time that I left as co-CEO, co-founder. And so I was like, okay, I've seen a lot of organizations. Are these organizations different? I will say for the most part, no, most of the challenges are, are quite similar. I think the thing that's different is that in the animal protection space, there tends to be less experience. People just dive straight into it without coming up through lots of other workplaces and lots of other roles. So people are coming in a little bit fresher to it, mm -hmm. which is both good and bad. There are way fewer resources. People are stretched more thinly than I would see in most organizations, even in other nonprofits. Prior to Scarlet Spark, I worked with a lot of for-profits, which could still be very passionate and mission-driven. But at the end of the day, you don't feel like lives are at stake. You don't feel like if I screw up or if I make a bad decision, I'm letting billions, trillions of individuals down. So I think the pressures are higher. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think we go into this movement or into this world of changing the world for animals from a place of passion, not necessarily from as intellectual a place as someone else might use to choose their career. Right. And you also mentioned that people come in fresher. I like that turn of phrase. What I have noticed in my 20 years in the animal protection movement in various capacities is that 
because so many of the organizations that were so small 20 years ago have grown to be so big, there Mm. are people who maybe they were interns or they were associates or what have you. They've become managers and might not have managerial training. And I'm certainly not talking about any one organization. I'm talking about just anecdotally things that I have noticed and things that have come up. And that's not only hard for the subordinates, but that's also hard for the leaders. They require training. They require support. They require inner resources. So talk to me a little bit about that and how Scarlet Spark can maybe help in that capacity. Yes, you are so spot on with that challenge. And again, that I would say isn't that unique to the animal protection world. Like in my prior life, I've worked with a lot of tech startups. The analogous experience there was these companies were getting all of this VC money. And so they would double, triple, quadruple in size within a year or two. And so they were just like throwing people into manager roles without even asking if they wanted the role. And so a lot of what I learned through that experience was how do you equip people with these skills quickly. And so it's really exciting to be able to do that at Scarlet Spark within the animal protection space. I think first and foremost, it starts with role clarity, which sounds really simplistic. But at this point, so Scarlet Spark has only been working within this space for a little over a year. Our birthday was in September of of 2023. We've worked with about 70 organizations at this point, which has been really amazing. I love them all. I can't believe that I'm getting to do this. But anyway, across those organizations, one of the things that we've seen similarly to what I've seen in, in my past experiences, there isn't like this clear definition of, wait, but what is a manager here? What is the purpose of a manager here? What are the expectations of a manager here? How are we even measuring success of a manager? So oftentimes when people think about manager resources, I love what you said, inner resources. Oftentimes when we think about that, we think, okay, let's give them tools or let's give them skills. And absolutely that stuff is important. But let's just start with like, what the heck is a manager? What are their responsibilities here? And there's no one right answer. And I think that's part of the reason that it's confusing is you're kind of given this title and given the job, but a manager in one organization might not be the same thing as a manager in another organization. Some organizations don't have managers at all. They use alternate forms of leadership. So yeah, I can definitely go into the skills, which I'd love to talk about, but I guess I'll pause to check in with you there. Is that something that you've seen as well? This sort of like ambiguity around like, who am I as a manager? What am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah, not only that, but, and I'm saying what I'm about to say based on something I've noticed about myself, just to say that if I'm about to throw anyone under the bus here, it's me. I have felt like my ambition, (laughs) drive, and my, I don't know, this sort of otherworldly desire to like keep going has at times pushed me to want to get higher and higher on the ladder, wherever, you know, insert the blank Mm. in in whatever capacity. And it's almost like, what is it grounded in? Am I clear about what that means? And I haven't always been. And that's resulted in a lot of painful moments. Oh, that's such a great point. Mm -hmm. And it's not you. It's also the culture. Yes, passion is a huge driving force, but also the cultural waters we're all swimming in sort of tell you without you even realizing that you're being told, you should go for the leader role, you should go for the manager role, you should be responsible for a team, that kind of thing. And that's a wonderful way to make an impact. I think of managers or or leaders as catalysts. They come in and they're able to accelerate or amplify the impact that a team can have. But it's not the only way to progress in your career or make an impact in your career. And that's something that I see 
all the time across all industries is people are given the role because they're really solid individual contributors. They're great at whatever their work is, or they ask for the role because they assume that should be the next thing that happens in their career. And then they're like, oh, those skills that I had in whatever, fundraising, programming, those don't translate at all (laughs) to Mm -hmm. leadership. Oftentimes it's the opposite. You have to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff. As someone who was an individual contributor, you have to be an amazing problem solver. Whereas as a leader, that's in many ways a, a bad habit to try to solve everyone else's problems. Now you have to help other people solve their own problems. So there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. And there's a lot of, you know, is it even right for you? Like for me, I've been in lots of leadership roles. That's not what I want to do primarily in, in my life. I love mm-hmm. teaching about leadership skills, but at Scarlet Spark, I get to focus on teaching, consulting, developing curriculum. I don't want to be in a leadership role. I know that that's not best for me, at least at this point in my life. I would. I want to go back to the skills in just a second too, but there's also this element of the kind of gender inequality that's existed, you know, across the board, but I'm talking specifically in the animal protection movement. I have had, and I don't mean to get too in the weeds here, but I have had two male bosses call me bossy. And so what I have felt in the past is that they didn't really know how to manage a strong individual thinker, a strong individual leader. And it was really demoralizing when that happened. And to me, that's indicative Mm -hmm. of not only sexism, but also it's indicative of their lack of leadership skills. Like that's just not how you manage. That's not how you deal with a strong person. When I was the senior editor Mm -hmm. at Veg News, I remember uh, I was leading a, a small team of editors. And I remember having disagreements with them constantly, like creative vision. And my boss, who was the publisher, Colleen, she would be like, you want them to have different opinions. Like, this is what editors are for. You need people. And that always, it was a really great point that has forever changed the way I deal with that kind of thing. Like, of course, I want different opinions. Mm. Of course, we want to bring different layers. And that's one specific example. But you could use that Mm. example with any organization too. Like, how do we collaborate? So with that in mind, tell me more about some of the skills that you think people would benefit from focusing on? Well, I totally want to answer that question, but can I just do a quick comment on what you said in terms of gender dynamics in the workplace? I would love that. Because I think that brings in a whole other layer of complexity that's worth at least briefly touching on. I mean, one is, again, I think some of what you're describing could be solved with a clear definition of what does leadership look like and what are our standards or expectations of leaders. But to your point about gender and also I think other things, race, age, ability, things like that. I know I kind of stood up on my soapbox a moment ago saying, essentially, don't go into leadership if that's not your strength or if that's not what you want to be doing. That said, I guess I will add on to that, the nuance that some people don't go into those roles because we're socialized not to seek power or not to seek leadership. Some of us don't go into roles if we just don't have examples of people who have identities we could relate to that show us, oh yeah, that is possible. And again, a lot of that is unconscious. I remember there's a study that looked at 
how women are impacted by a very kind of unconscious cue of a role model. I believe in this study, they had participants speak in front of an audience and they either had an image of Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton behind them on the stage. So they weren't told about it. They just kind of walked onto the stage and they unconsciously or consciously spotted that image. And when the female participants in in this study were on stage with an image of Hillary Clinton, they spoke longer and they spoke with more confidence and they were perceived as more eloquent by their audience. So even in these teeny tiny ways, we're cued to understand what's possible for us and to kind of broaden our perception of who a leader might be. And so, yes, while on the one hand, it's great to not pursue management or leadership if that's not your passion or your skill set. On the other hand, it is worth kind of interrogating and checking in and going, why am I not interested? Is it potentially fear? Is it that I haven't had enough role models? Am I willing to go into this with some discomfort so that potentially it opens the door for others who might see themselves reflected in the identities that I hold? So... That's the nuance that I would add on. I love, thank you. That's so cool. This is so fascinating to me. Okay. So now tell me a little bit more about the skills that, I mean, you've already mentioned quite a few of them, but, and I'm going to listen to this interview like many times, I think, but tell me more. (laughs) Okay. So we have a program at Scarlet Spark called People Skills for Animal People. And that program, we really wanted to you know, we know people are busy. We know that there's not a whole lot of time for training and for learning. So we wanted to focus on what are the most essential skills. And we have a series of skills and workshops that that we focus on, but there are four skills, kind of skill buckets that we've seen again and again, make the biggest difference in your effectiveness, your capacity as a leader. Number one is question skills. What we find is that people who are most effective as leaders, whether formal or informal leaders, ask more questions and ask a greater variety of questions than average. So generally you'll be in a conversation and it's like statement, 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 quick little question. Whereas when you step into a leadership role, ideally that ratio is really swapped and you're mostly leading with questions. Those questions could be things like, tell me your perspective, right? To the point that you were making earlier, you want all those opinions, you want all of those ideas to come in and either chisel an idea or bring something new into existence. So you want questions like, tell me about your thinking, but you also want clarifying questions. In animal protection, resources are so scarce. And oftentimes the mistake that I see is people, because they're feeling like there isn't enough time, rush to get something started. And they're thinking that that's saving them time. And then they end up having to do a whole lot of cleanup and way more time when they realize that there was miscommunication or misalignment. So opinion questions, clarifying questions, and coaching questions, helping people come up with solutions to their own challenges. Things like someone comes to you with a problem instead of saying, I know how to solve this. You start with, well, tell me more about this. What are you looking to achieve? What's standing in the way? Stuff like that. So that's number one. Let me pause there to see if you have questions or reactions to that one. Just the idea of approaching something with curiosity and a collaborative spirit that by itself is kind of blowing my mind, which unfortunately it shouldn't be. (laughs) That should just be how things are approached. But I think frequently, especially 
in this sort of mayhem, the insane amount of work we need to do in the animal protection movement. I think that there's this urgency that sometimes overrides humanity. And so that's my response to what you're saying is that we can take a step back. That's okay. It's not only just okay, but it probably will ultimately create a lot more change. Yes, I love that. I just think you had such a great point there about the willingness to pause and get curious and ask those questions. Oftentimes, I feel like at Scarlet Spark, what we do is almost give people permission they didn't realize they needed to just take a breath, pause, think about things, reflect. There's so much fascinating research on just the power of reflection. There's a a relatively recent study that found that surgeons who were either asked to get more practice or reflect on their past surgeries, turns out that the surgeons who spent time reflecting made faster progress in their skills than the surgeons who got more practice. So oftentimes, especially in both in advocacy, I think very much in the Western world, but increasingly everywhere, pausing to just go like, what have I learned so far? What have I experienced so far? Again, our cultural tendency is like, action, 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 forward, forward, forward movement. But actually so much progress and change happens if you just carve out five minutes from time to time, 15 minutes if you're feeling luxurious, (laughs) an hour every month to just pause and go, what have I learned? What are my options here? Things like that. So I, I think you're so right that a big part of these question skills is almost like giving yourself that permission to go from having essentially no peripheral vision to expanding what you're looking at so that Mm -hmm. you could really learn and explore and and make ultimately much better decisions. So you're reminding me of something, just in case this is of interest to people. I'm a big fan of that monthly check-in with myself. And one thing that I have found useful is journals that are offered from this company called Inc. and Volt. That's like I-N-K and like the plus sign, Volt, V-O-L-T. And people don't need that. You could just use like a notebook, but I like props. So just an idea to gamify self-accountability, I think is sometimes useful. So yeah, tell me more. What other skills? Okay, so number one is question skills. And that applies in so many different situations and scenarios, but that's a first. Number two is clarity skills. I hinted at this already, but so much of resource loss, time loss, frustration gain happens because of miscommunication, misalignment. So a lot of what we focus on throughout the People Skills for Animal People series is different degrees of clarity skills. Clarity has to do with the specificity of your communication, but also confirming understanding. So a really small thing to get in the habit of is, for example, someone asks you to do something and you reflect back and summarize what you just heard. Or someone comes to you with a massive problem and they've been talking and talking and talking before diving into trying to solve it. You pause and you go, okay, I think I just heard you say this thing, this thing, and this thing. Did I understand that correctly? Where should we start? So that's number two. Anything you'd add there or have insights about? Yeah, I just think that you would be fun to be in a relationship with. Because you know how to communicate. Like By fun, do you mean not fun? <laughs> no, I mean, these are skills not only for work, but also, no offense to either of our spouses, by the way. I just mean, like, it, it's like you can show up in any kind of gritty conversation that way. You know what I mean? Like, 
just open-mindedly. Oh, I would say I agree and my spouse would disagree. <laughs> I think in most contexts, question skills and clarity skills, particularly if you're aligned on the same mission, we're trying to achieve a result. These are the two most important skills you need. In a relationship context, I have definitely needed to pull back on going too intense with questions and clarity. So for example, let's say my husband gives me some feedback. If it was in the workplace, I would go, well, can you share an example of that? Can you tell me a little bit more about what the impact is of that? Whereas in a relationship context, I also tend to be the slightly hyper-rational one. He tends Mm -hmm. to be the hyper-emotional one. Mm -hmm. He agrees with this, by the way, this assessment. And so he'll be like, ah, stop doing the tools. (laughs) So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Absolutely applies in many contexts, but go gently and experiment before committing to any of these practices in your romantic relationships. Okay. (laughs) Noted, noted. That'll be for a different podcast altogether. Maybe like the one that Esther Perel hosts or something. Yeah. But to your point about getting into gritty situations, this is why clarity, we really dig into it throughout the different workshops that we have because it's useful in so many contexts. You talked before about someone calling you bossy. What the heck does that even mean? With question skills and clarity skills combined, you can go, okay, it sounds like you're experiencing my leadership as bossy. I'd love to understand where you're coming from so that I can understand what potentially I can change or how we could maybe align on a norm or standards of leadership around here. Can you say more about what bossy means to you? What are some examples of that? Oh, that's interesting, that example. I noticed that other people do this as well. Do you perceive that as bossy? You know, so that kind of conversation all of a sudden takes this potentially painful, demotivating, biased, messy situation and unravels it so that hopefully you can move forward both better for the conversation, or at least one of you. I love that. I love that so much. That's so great. Okay, so are there any other skills while we're on this topic? Yeah, so I'll I'll summarize the other two briefly. So we say questions, clarity, and then we also do a deep dive into what we call inward skills and outward skills. So inward skills are those self skills. Do I know myself? Do I understand my needs and my energizers or my de-energizers? Do I understand what I'm feeling right now? Do I understand how to alter what I'm feeling right now? So it's a lot of like emotional intelligence intelligence. I I used to study emotion regulation. I kind of hate the term regulation now. I think of it as like (laughs) self-collaboration or Mm self-cooperation. In animal protection, we are so mean to ourselves. I think that's a pretty common thing that isn't quite as common across other organizations that I've seen. There's a tendency to, right? I mean, because there's so much suffering and it's like, well, who am I to feel happy or feel good when there's so much suffering out there? I think that's maybe part of it. Part of it is an intense sense of compassion, intense empathy for many people that we work with. And and so as a result of that, people often are kind of abusive to themselves. I think of it as like animal abuse, right? We are animals and we stand against violence toward animals, but we can be very abusive toward ourselves, whether that's saying mean things to ourselves or burning ourselves out or you know, not having boundaries, those kinds of things. That's the inward skills bucket. Love that. Love that. Have you seen this? What's your experience with that bucket of skills? I have found that kind of self-awareness, which I do think comes with age. I'm not saying it always does. You can have a very self-aware young person, but I think that kind of self-awareness, that's the hard work. And I just really strongly encourage anyone listening to this, especially those of you who work in 
some kind of service industry or in the animal protection movement, or if you're Mm -hmm. a caretaker of any kind, a teacher, a parent, a child taking care of an older parent, something like that, that self-awareness is vital because like you said, the ability to self-intervene and also self-soothe. Mm. To me, it's those yeah. Tara Brock, the meditation instructor and psychologist, she calls it a U-turn. By the way, she's vegan, small aside. She calls it a U-turn. When can you have a U-turn in what you're doing? It's those moments of recognizing mm. the U-turn before they happen that can create stronger activists and stronger leaders. Yes. I love that. Because again, thinking about people potentially staying within the animal protection movement for only two years. That's incredibly sad that people are drawn enough in. They're passionate. They have skills and energy and time they're willing to dedicate. And then they, their experiences are so negative or they burn out and they move on elsewhere. And then we lose power and momentum. And I'm not saying that those inward skills are the only aspect of it. A huge part of it is leadership. A huge part of it is the resources that we lack within animal protection. But those inward skills for leaders and for anyone, I think are that kind of protective mechanism that allow us to stay resilient and stay present and active. We underestimate how easy it is to burn out. I know I do. I'm always like, not me, I'm too passionate. And then later I'm like, I, I don't want to get out of bed today. So yeah, those inward skills, incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. What else? Uh, You said there was one more. Yep, one more. So skill number four is those outward skills. So outward skills are probably what people are already quite good at within animal protection. That's things like understanding other people's perspectives, compassion, empathy, but also not just emotional empathy, but cognitive empathy. Can I understand the different needs and the different perspectives of different stakeholders or whatever term you want to use, right? I'm working with maybe my team, my direct reports. I'm also working with maybe my manager. I'm also working with funders. There's so many different individuals that I might be collaborating with. And our movement is so international. That's another component of it. So having that skill of recognizing what are the different needs and preferences and styles of these different individuals. And really important, how do I tweak my message or my work style to be able to get them best experience of working together to bring out the best in those individuals. That's another component that we focus on a lot in those workshops. I love that. That goes to the ethos of animal rights because we are elevating one another and we're supporting one another in this shared world of wanting to change the world for animals. I I think that's a beautiful thing. Just being able to check in with those around us and say, hey, what do you need and how can I help you get there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and we translate these four essential skills to other kind of broader skills. So we focus on things like coaching skills, feedback, strategic thinking, prioritization, uh, equity and inclusion. But those four that I just talked through, they're sort of like this red thread throughout every single other workshop that we offer. So tell me about these workshops. I think that our listeners have a good idea of what it is you're doing now with Scarlet Spark, but how are you doing it? So workshops are just one small part of what we do. So within Scarlet Spark, we have kind of three buckets of service that we provide all for free thanks to funders. So thank you funders (laughs) and future funders if you're listening. So bucket number one is what we call one-to-one. 
that's when we work with one organization at a time. And usually there, it's not workshops, it's consulting. And so we might be focusing on things like, how do we create a really simple, scalable, equitable compensation model? Or how do we improve your hiring process? Or how do we make sure that your performance assessment system is working really well and is fair and is useful. So that's the one-on-one. We're working with one organization at a time and really doing a deep dive on fortifying their people systems. Then bucket number two is what we call one-to-many. And that's where we have these workshops through People Skills for Animal People. Our cohort right now is wrapping up. If you're listening and you're interested, please sign up for our newsletter. It's called the Scarlet Newsletter. And uh, you can sign up (laughs) right on our website to be alerted about future cohorts. Ongoing in that one-to-many track is our leadership office hours. So twice a month, we hang out in a Zoom room and invite people in the animal protection space to show up with any questions, challenges. It could be something like, I have this particular issue with my direct report, what do I do? Or it could be, we're trying to improve how we do employee onboarding. What are your suggestions? So that's leadership office hours. And then the third bucket is what we call one to all, which are tools and templates that we have in our resource library. That's available again on our website. That's scarletspark.org. Usually what the way that that resource library is built up is we'll be working with a client one-on-one and they'll say, you know, we need interview questions for managers. And so we'll make that for them and then we'll share that with everyone else. Or they'll say, we need a template for how to have really good one-on-ones with managers and direct reports. So we'll make them a template and then we'll post it online in that resource library. So those are the three kind of segments of how we do our work. One-to-one, one-to-many, one-to-all. And there was recently a survey, I think you started to allude to this earlier. Tell me more about the survey of leadership in the movement. What did you find Yeah. So that was a survey that we did early on in the year just to see, are there any major differences? We asked, what are the biggest problems that you have as an organization? Number one, I think 60% of organizations said their biggest problem is lack of time. Makes sense. Totally makes Mm -hmm. sense. Although I would argue that when you feel that your biggest problem is a lack of time, your actual biggest problem is probably something else. Most likely it's unclear priorities. Yeah. When you don't have time, it just means you have to do fewer things. And it's really hard to decide what aren't we going to do when we care so much and we want to do everything. There's a lot of research that points to the fact that organizations with a smaller number of priorities achieve more than organizations with a larger number of priorities. So if you're feeling like you don't have time, it might be worth it to check in. Are we clear and are we realistic with our number of priorities? You might also be feeling like you don't have enough time because you're doing a lot of cleanup of messes, miscommunication, frustration, people quitting, people underperforming. And so there, things like leadership skills and better organizational systems could actually be the solution. Most of us probably won't actually ever get more time, but we can use the time that we have better. So that was number one is ugh, not enough time. People also said that they struggled with strategic planning. That was one that came up again and again. People trying to figure out like, is our process for deciding what we're going to do good? Is it effective? Is it inclusive? So that's something that we focus on quite a lot. Then the third thing was communication, conflict, misalignment, miscommunication, the kind of natural stuff that happens when you're a bunch of humans, particularly a bunch of passionate humans, splattered across the world trying to achieve goals together. So nothing shocking, but incredibly important to take seriously because it's all fixable. It's all addressable. And it's beautiful what happens once those things start 
moving smoothly because then it does feel like you've just won a whole bunch of time back. So given all of that, what would your advice be to someone who wants to find employment in the movement? What should they look for in a workplace culture? Oh my gosh. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I would say more important than any of the things that I just brought up, what you ideally want to look for is an organization that is open to feedback, has a track record and can give some examples of how they've applied employee or volunteer feedback in the past? Do they have a track record of learning, experimenting, and evolving? Because we're all messy. All organizations are messy. No matter how hard we try not to be, all humans are messy, no matter how hard we try not to be. I think what tends to be a better predictor of whether you'll have a great professional experience is not how tidy and well structured as the organization, but how willing and eager are they to keep learning, to keep improving, and to make your voice part of that story and part of that journey. I love that. That's really beautifully said. You mentioned earlier some of the frustrations people might have. Like you said, it's a lack of time, but then you positioned it as perhaps it's about prioritization or internal communication within the organization. Would you say that those are also the main reasons for burnout in the movement? I'm hesitant to answer this with confidence because I haven't looked into this specific question, but I can say, here's my opinion based on just the conversations we've been having. So this is my (laughs) non-empirical perspective and kind of probably bringing in research on what tends to cause burnout. So yes, burnout can happen because we're doing too much or we're stretched too thin. But actually, more likely, burnout tends to happen because of a perceived lack of agency or power. So oftentimes, we work really, really, really hard and we're tired. But if we feel like we have the power and the autonomy to make choices, we're significantly less likely to burn out. So power is like that buffer (laughs) around our tendency toward burnout. So I think within the movement, absolutely thinking about how do we make people's workload reasonable? How do we make priorities super clear? Yes, really important. And also, how do we structure people's roles and people's work so that they have that appropriate amount of autonomy and power over their work? So that could be things like flexibility in hours, but probably even more meaningful is like, Can you give people voice and choice in what work they do, how they do that work, how they contribute to co-creating the strategy of the organization? And then the third thing that I would throw in there is, it's really interesting. It's been interesting to see before working in with mostly for-profits, they were really into, at least in the tech world where I spent a lot of time, making the mission of the organization front and center. They were like, we're changing the world. We're doing all this amazing stuff. And not to diminish the perceived importance of what they were doing, but in animal protection, we're actually changing the world. We're actually saving lives Mm -hmm. of all animals, humans included. And yet within animal protection, I rarely see that same celebration and kind of repetition of why what we're doing matters, why each role here matters. There is often this strain feeling of we better get this done because things are only getting worse, but there isn't as much joy and celebration and reconnection to why this work is so incredibly meaningful as I think we all need to have that burnout buffer. Burnout is so often a result of a lack of meaning, a lack of connection to 
why this effort that we're putting in is making a difference. Those are probably the three things is clarity of priorities, more sense of control and agency, and then a greater sense of connection, particularly in that celebratory, joyful way to the work that we're doing, the meaning of our work. I'm curious if you have ever felt that you were teetering on burnout. Oh my gosh, yes. So not since Scarlet Spark, but in my last organization, Life Labs Learning, I mean, that was an interesting one because I had control, you know, I was co-CEO, technically no one was my boss. I had a lot of choice and power, but it was limited in one significant way. And then the meaning bucket was probably the most important. So the the way that my choice and power was limited is that at the time that I stepped out of the role, we were about 150 employees. And at that point, I really didn't feel like I could do what I wanted to do. I didn't feel like I could just spend all day focusing on the things that I was best at or, or most passionate about because I was in service to the rest of the organization. So a big lesson learned for me was that's not where I ideally want to be. I don't want to be in that kind of role. It could be a wonderful role for the right person, but turned out it wasn't right for me because I didn't have agency over what I did that day. I had to respond to email. I had to address concerns and issues and opportunities. But the more significant thing that led to burnout for me, which is why I'm here where I am, is as much as the work felt meaningful, it felt like meaningful with the lowercase m versus meaningful with a capital M. We had at one point, this was years before I left, we had a company retreat and I really wanted it to be vegan because we had food at the retreat. And my co-founder also she was vegetarian at the time. She's now vegan. And she was like, yeah, let's just do a vegan retreat. But because we're really inclusive as an organization and we didn't want to force this on anyone. And I think I did this really poorly, but I sent out a survey and basically was like, how open would you be to having this vegan retreat? And about 50% of the organization was like, you can't tell us what to eat. You know, you can't put your morals and your values on us. And I was sobbing. I was just sitting there. We had a WeWork office at the time and we had this larger office in this one little office that was sort of like this like fishbowl. So I couldn't even hide from anyone. I was just sitting there in this all glass little container, just like sobbing because that was the moment that told me, okay, I don't think I belong here. And I was also telling myself the story that, okay, we're teaching people leadership skills, but we're also teaching them to be more compassionate. We're also teaching them to be more open-minded. And at that moment, I realized we are, but I don't think it transfers to other species. I don't think that when you are more compassionate and empathetic toward individuals, sadly, it just doesn't seem to then transfer over to non-human individuals. And that just shattered my heart. And it was a few years before I stepped out because I felt like I needed to build more infrastructure and kind of set it up for success. But that completely sent me down this path of burnout because I was working like 60, 80 hour weeks, which I would never, ever recommend to anyone ever. And I do not do anymore. And increasingly, I wasn't loving what I was doing as the organization grew. But again, that meaning bucket for me was just devastating. I knew I needed to do something that more directly had an impact on animals. Wow. Well, that's great that you were able to make this shift truly and also just pay it forward in a way. I never felt like I was teetering on burnout until social media started to swallow me alive. And I realized that... Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) I realized that it, it was just destroying my mental health. And I know that people talk about this and I've talked about it, but I can't state how important it was for me to 
turn the volume way down, take off all social media from my phone and only go on social media when I had to, not just to waste time Mm -hmm. or procrastinate something. But it has, frankly, destroyed a part of my soul to just see how... Oh, gosh. (laughs) It's not the movement, though. You know, I need to remind myself that's not the animal protection movement. It's just hashtag random vegans, right? And it's like the vitriol. (laughs) Is that a hashtag? Should I be checking that hashtag? I just made it up. There's probably someone who's, yeah, I just made it up. There's like vitriol. And like I interviewed Melanie Joy. I don't actually remember if that's going to air before this interview, but, but it probably is. And I feel like some of what we talked about got into that a little bit. Maybe just, mm-hmm. it's not as though I took it personally, but I felt like I had a personal stake in it. And mm-hmm. I felt like Marianne and I have been working uh, on our henhouse for 14 years and we've interviewed thousands of people who are just doing such incredible work and we have had mi- literally millions of downloads. And so mm-hmm. I, it's not like I was being all self-important about it. Like, why does this still happen when we're doing... It's not about us. But it saddened me to almost incomprehensible level that people just rip each other apart. And so I think that shielding myself from that, which happened in almost an emergency moment of I'm done. I'm done with all of it. Not life. Okay. I'm not getting that dark here. Social media life. Right. And so it's just like, no, I'm done. And I'm still recovering from that. I'm not sure I'll ever fully recover, but that's the only time Mm. I felt potentially like I was burning out. So totally. And I think that it's such an important lesson. We had this model or still have this model at Life Labs Learning, my last company, that are the five biggest drivers of engagement and desire to participate. We call it the camps model because it's like you want to be in the engaged camp versus the disengaged camp. And the first is certainty or I also like to think of it as clarity. Do I have enough of an understanding of what's going on? Do I have enough of a sense of safety? The second is autonomy, which I I just talked about. The third is meaning, then progress, then social inclusion or connection. And what you just described, I think it really hits on that meaning and progress because it's like, okay, does what I do and all of this effort that I've poured into this, does it really matter? And do we feel like we're getting closer and closer to our goal. In animal protection, it is so hard to even gauge that because as we all know, the number of animals consumed or dying is not going down, is increasing. And yet social awareness, interest, passion, potentially dollars, solutions, options, things like that, those do very much seem to be increasing. So much of it has to do with what you look at, both as an individual and as a leader. How can you both acknowledge the painful and frustrating realities while at the same time directing your energy and attention to this is where progress is happening and recognizing that progress is almost never linear. It's often this like you work, you work, you work, it feels like nothing's going to change. And all of a sudden this shift is exponential because you've laid the foundation for something to be built on when that thing is ready to be built. So much of staying away from burnout is being able to name and validate the pain of all of that that we're surrounded in while being able to redirect our attention to what's meaningful and where we're making progress. And then the social inclusion piece too, is who do you surround yourself with? Are you surrounded by hashtag random vegans or are you surrounded (laughs) by a a more soul soothing, soul enriching hashtag? 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so well said. Tell us about your new book, Lead Together, Stop Squirreling Away Power and Build a Better Team. <laughs> Thank you. It's a book that just came out this year, 2023 in September. It is a story of a business squirrel. He's a branch manager. I went with the parable approach here because there's so much research that shows that we learn best through storytelling. And in particular, I really wanted to tackle the topic of power and power sharing, particularly in the workplace, but as it relates in so many other areas in life. Sam Squirrel, who's our hero, he's very much this kind of command and control, top-down leadership type of leader. That's how he was brought up. And it seems to be working until there is a crisis. So there's a forest recession happening because of a condo development that's going up, a human condo development. And suddenly all of these top-down approaches and using punishment and reward and fear aren't working. And Acorn gathering production is down. Squirrels are leaving to work in the city. And so he has a sort of crisis of leadership and goes on this journey into the forest, gets lost, finds this squirrel named Mary Parker Forrest, who's actually named after Mary Parker Follett, who's this incredible scholar in the 1800s, 1900s, who wrote about sharing power in the workplace. And he goes on this journey to learn a different way to lead. So instead of leading more firmly, he learns to lead together. So that's the idea. 100% of proceeds from the sale of the book go toward helping organizations that help animals. So it's very intertwined with my work at Scarlet Spark. But it's a lesson that hopefully could be extended across my dream is that, yes, it helps organizations, but my biggest dream is, can it unlock our relationship to power in general? We have this power over relationship, not just in the workplace, but in our interaction with other humans, with other species, there is this tendency of creating this hierarchy of power. What if instead we had a shared power, mutual flourishing approach to how we coexist, whether it's in the workplace or in the life place? <laughs> I love that. Wow. That's so, so, so cool. I have a few more questions for you. So I, I hope you'll stay on just for some bonus material so I could get into a few different things that we haven't touched on. But before you go, absolutely, Tanya, tell us about Scarlet. Oh, <laughs> okay. So Scarlet Spark is actually named in honor of my husband, Brian's and I's and, and my's first dog. <laughs> her name was Scarlet. She was all scarred up. We don't know exactly what her history was. We adopted her when she was about 10 years old. She was a super scarred up, kind of scary looking pit bull, but she just transformed our community. We were living in Harlem at the time. We would go around on these walks and we didn't know anyone. People didn't really interact with each other that much, but everyone stopped and interacted with Scarlett. And she just made people smile. I don't know what it was about her. She just like looked right into your eyes, made people smile. We developed all these friendships and relationships as a result of it, including Alyssa, who's our executive director at Scarlett Spark. We met because of our dogs. And she was just you know, this spark of community, of connection. And so we decided to honor her in the name of the organization. Our goal is to create that scarlet spark for others where through the work, hopefully, not only are we laying the groundwork for freedom and joy for animals, we're also creating more of a spark and an openness in people's hearts and minds to be able to see all other animals as worthy of love, of care, of connection. So broadening our definition of what is community in the way that Scarlett did for us. Beautiful. That is so beautiful. There's nothing I love more than a pit bull, especially a pit bull who has a, a transformation story and a transformative mm -hmm. vibe, which I feel like is pretty much 
not pretty much, it's every pit bull. Uh, yeah, and I I'm so, so happy to hear that that is the namesake for your incredible work that you're doing. So tell us, exactly. Tanya, about how people can learn more about your work and get involved. Yeah. So our website is scarlet, S-C-A-R-L-E-T, spark.org. And again, I, I would really encourage signing up for our newsletter because we announce when we have new free events and resources. You can also sign up for free office hours there. Check out that resource library and just say hi. Let us know <laughs> that you're interested in what we're doing and, and let us know if we can help you in any way. If you're interested in the book, Lead Together, it's the one with squirrels on the cover. It's available in most places books are sold, bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You could also check out my website, tanyaluna.com, T-A-N-I-A-L-U-N-A.com. And if you click on Lead Together, you'll see lots of free resources related to the topic of shared power and shared leadership. Amazing. There are a shockingly lot amount of ways of spelling Tanya. I know a lot of Tanyas, but I think all of them spell their name differently somehow. Like there's no overlap. I know. I do think I bought, I, I think Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A redirects to my website. So <laughs> I tried, I tried to buy up some of them. <laughs> yeah, I did that with jasminesinger.com, but with an E, like Jasmine yeah, Singer, makes just because most people spell it that way. I recently met someone whose name is Jasmine, and it's J-A-S-M-Y-N. And I was like, okay, we can be friends, I think. Now, as we're saying this, I feel bad toward Jasmine with an E and Tanya with a Y that we just like bought up their domain names. So if you're listening, That's Tanya right, Luna or it. Jasmine Singer, let us know. And we will like, at least I, I'll give you back that domain name if you need it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. You keep it. it. Okay. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. There is a Jasmine singer who's like a a singer in Russia, I think, uh, who is pretty popular. And, and I feel like I've kind of ruined her life a little bit by just taking up all of the domains, (laughs) the, the Gmail. She's like, who is this? vegan in New York, you know, like what is happening? (laughs) But how interesting that I wonder, is that like nominal determinism that she's singer who's a singer and you're singer who spends most of your time on a microphone. So there's got to be something there. Maybe. (laughs) I was a musical theater major 5,000 years ago when I was. So, hey, you never know. Anyway, Tanya, I like how we started and ended this interview with talking about your name and names. (laughs) Right. So it feels like a good moment. So stick on for a little while for the bonus material. And thank you so much for all of your incredible work changing the world for animals and for joining us today on Our Hen House. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's listening, who's making a difference in the world and getting us closer and closer to the shared mission that we have. So I'm so grateful to get to be in company with you all. It's that time of year. Start spreading the news about all the reasons to say no to animal gifting campaigns like those promoted by Heifer International, Oxfam, World Vision, and so many others, and support plant-based feeding gifts instead. A well-fed world runs a program called Plants for Hunger, it's the number four, which is a plant-based hunger relief program that feeds people while protecting animals and the planet. Instead of using animal-based foods or gifting live animals, your donation supports plant-based food and farming projects serving some of the world's most impoverished communities. And it's not just gifts. While designed as a gift donation program, you can also just donate directly once or recurring. 
All styles are critically important and tremendously appreciated. Visit plantsforhunger.org to find out more. That's Plants for Hunger with the number four. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is something that we're all anxious about, I have to admit. Uh, and so is Hannah Thompson Weeman, who is, of course, now the president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance. We've been following her work for a long time since she has been publishing the Animal Ag Watch column on uh, Meeting Place. The Animal Ag Watch column is the column that keeps a watch on you and other animal activists. And she and we are all nervous about what's going to happen at COP28 and whether they're going to do anything about meat. Of course, we're nervous on different sides of the fence there, but nice to know they are nervous. I really like the the headline, though it's a bit misleading. Meat hardly on the menu, but definitely on the agenda at COP28. Uh, So she mentions that in the lead up to COP, the United Arab Emirates, that's where the, you know, it's being held in Dubai. Leaders issued a food systems and agriculture agenda for the event and asked attending governments to sign onto a first ever agreement to address emissions from food and agriculture. Again, can we, can we just wait a minute to like say, well, that's great. But first ever, really? Like if you and I knew about this like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't know, like why didn't they? But, you know, okay you know, they're catching up. So, you know, we might lose the planet in the meantime, but at least they're catching up. All right. In a first for COP, a full day will be devoted to food and agriculture on December 10th. So, you know, by the time you hear this, that well, actually, uh, this will already have have well passed. And so you're probably already familiar with some, some of what's happening there. In another COP first, the UAE has announced plans for climate conscious catering including asking vendors to deliver a two-thirds plant-based menu. So as we, as I said, it, uh, her title that it's hardly on the menu is hardly true. Like, like even at a normal meal, isn't it only maybe one-third that would be the meat entree and the other two-thirds? I, I don't know. Two-thirds plant-based. All right. So she, she is upset about the fact that, uh, you know, they're talking about it at all which is good. And she's upset about the fact that activist groups will be there like Compassion and World Farming. They've been quick to jump into the cop conversation. So, I mean, why why wouldn't they? Quick to jump. And they issued a report last week, quote, dealing with the financial impact of intensive animal agriculture on the global south. God forbid we should worry about that. On the positive side, according to Hannah, U.S. animal agriculture will be well represented and will it ever. This is where my anxieties really start to rise because they have really caught on. They know it's important and they are selling their a bill of goods along with the many, many dead animals that they're selling. And she said there's going to be a significant number, uh, more than ever, she's heard of attendees actively participating in the conference, I bet there will. By being at the table, we can help make sure our sustainability story is heard. You know, let's hope it's heard and not not paid attention to because it's bullshit, as we all know. In fact, it's literally bullshit. She points out that each sector of the animal agriculture community has made tremendous improvements in all areas of farming, including environmental sustainability, and is committed to continued progress. Well, 
for one th- I mean, I, I don't think that's untrue. I, well, maybe tremendous is a little superlative, <laughs> but maybe uh, tremendous is, is a little too much. But they have made improvements because they know it's... But you know, when you're starting from absolute disaster to make it a little bit better, like it's just not enough, honey. It's not enough. And they've made commitments. U.S. Animal Agriculture has made commitments. Well, God, God knows they're very good at keeping all of their commitments towards, you know, keeping sustainable development goals. And in addition, organizations from various sectors of agriculture have joined forces in the Protein Pact, the largest ever effort to strengthen animal proteins contributions to healthy people, healthy animals. (laughs) Animal protein makes such a contribution to healthy animals by killing them and eating them. Healthy communities and a healthy environment. It, like, it's a protein pact. Why would it just be, have to do with animal protein? Like, hello. They just want to own that word protein. She goes on. Similarly, the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Poultry and Eggs and the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, oh, God, are developing a multi-stakeholder sustainability reporting framework to continually monitor progress. So I guess my point here is that they're on it. What they're on is to, like is to is to pull the wool over everybody's eyes and keep doing what they're doing. She she has all these quotes from the sustainability impact report which I'm not going to bore you with, but you know, according to them, they're doing great. We could just get rid of them. All right, the second story is is kind of a counter story. I don't know quite what to make of it. This is from also from meetingplace.com. It's from the meat business column by Gregory Bloom. He is not usually a very uh, sensible columnist, in my opinion. And yet he has written something here, which, you know, like when I was just saying about they make a protein pact and they're only talking about animal protein, he's not just talking about animal protein. I don't know what's going on here. But yeah, somebody got to him. The dynamic duo of beef and beans. And if you just cut out the duo of beef and, you have dynamic beans. And that's what he's talking about. He's from Colorado where they grow a lot of beans. So maybe that's an influence. Oh, he says that's an influence on him. Um, As someone deeply rooted in the meat business, he says, who stumbled several years ago upon the world of dry beans. I've witnessed a beautiful partnership between beans and beef, both on the farm and on the plate. Sounds like he discovered beans. You know, they've been around for a long time, Gregory. Before we delve into the marriage of beef and beef, he, of course, you know, we can't just have beans. We, we have to marry them to beef. And let's explore the nutritional treasure trove that dry beans, they don't have to be dry, but, you know, that is how we usually buy them, including black beans, kidney beans, and chickpeas bring to the table. And then he goes into it. An exceptional plant-based source of protein, rich in dietary fiber, providing complex carbohydrates. Usually carbohydrates on this site is a, is a curse word, but you know, apparently they, they now realize that complex carbohydrates are actually good for you. <laughs> a treasure trove of essential vitamins and minerals, and some have rich antioxidant content. You're like, who woke up here at meetingplace.com and realized that beans are great for you? He also points out that they're really good for crop rotation, which of course is an excuse to grow corn because corn depletes the the earth and then and then the beans, you can plant beans and they can renew the earth because they fix nitrogen. So if you're a devoted enthusiast of meat, chances are you're not. But if you were, especially the richness of beef, it's time to extend that culinary love affair to dry beans as well. What's going on here? 
that he gives a, a a suggestion for how you should cook beans with a dead animal, which I will I will spare you. So interesting. All right. I love this final story because it shows how activism can make a difference. And we all have to remember this all the time. We can, we cannot just sit down and take it. We have to speak up. This is from our friends over at Plant-Based News. Pantomime removes song that calls vegans anemic and annoying after complaints. All right. A pantomime. I had to, I had to be informed of this. I've heard of, I've heard, it doesn't mean the same thing in the UK as it means in the US. And in the UK, it, it, it means a kind of musical comedy show that is performed in theaters, usually at Christmas time. And they're generally, as according to this article, they are generally understood to be family shows, meaning the audience would have been full of children. All right, so they did this performance of Mother Goose. This is at the Everyman Theater in Cheltenham and included the lyrics, G in vegan stands for gassy, while the A stands for either anemic or annoying. Now. You know, I like I I can be made fun of in in good form, but this just isn't this isn't funny. Like, there's nothing funny about that. It's just mean. And there's children listening. One girl watching the show, according to this article, who was vegan, later stated that her classmates had sung the vegan panto song to her at school. Well, that's charming. According to Gloucestershire Live, her father said that she asked him, why did the actors think it's okay to be horrible to kids like me who just want to be kind to animals and not eat them? Yeah, how about that? And how about this kid getting that quote in the in Gloucestershire Live? That is great activism. The father also was quoted, said the humor was cheap. And why make fun of vegans as entertaining as it was for a certain section of the audience? Yeah, like, like, all right, they can make fun of things. But in the first place, why make fun of a tiny, tiny, tiny minority? And we know why. Well, of course, maybe in the UK, we're maybe just a tiny minority. (laughs) It's not that small. But we know why, because everybody else loves to make fun of vegans. I mean, when you're going to make fun of, you know, you know, punch up, like make fun of somebody with power. Don't make fun of the vegan kid. All right, but they there were the complaints and they removed the song. They made this thing about how they're constantly evolving, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, activism, it works. According to Issy Acosta, who's a campaigner at Viva, when it comes to pantomimes, there is always a delicate balance between humor and insult. And this performance of Mother Goose is no different. The trope of the annoying, anemic, and gassy vegan is an outdated insult and one that ignores the reasons why more and more people are switching to plant-based each year. So good for you. Good for this kid. Good for Viva. Good for this kid's father. They made a change. And I want to remember that every day. Like, like it, it's not impossible to get people to listen to us. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. If we make it to the $25,000, 
And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our hen house, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash support. That's ourhenhouse.org slash support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.